have to learn your cliches. You're gonna have to study them. You're gonna have to know them. Well, you know, you go out there and you give 110% and you want to play good and, you know, you hope you play good. I think we play pretty good tonight. Well, you know, there's no I in the word team, and this is a team effort. Ten, five, touchdown. Oh, man, you know, you just got to play one game at a time and go out there and give 110%. All right! Play ball. Hey, Top Hunter Project fans. Ryan Ellis here, welcoming you to the first installment of Scoring at the Movies. Oh, Ryan. <laughs> yep, we're branching off from the original point of this podcast yet again. This time I've got a new partner in the chair beside me, my long-time friend of the past seven years. Yeah, that's not so long. Chris DiGregorio. <laughs> you know how you can tell when somebody's a good friend? When they can say their name. <laughs> there were some outtakes there. Impress them, Chris. Dazzle them with your intro. Hi, Ryan. Nicely, uh, nicely done. I thought that was what Happy to be done. here. <laughs> you want to play good? I hope we play good, and I'm sure we'll play pretty good tonight. Welcome to the podcast. This podcast, by the way, was Chris's idea, so if you like it, Send him some money. What we'll be doing probably once every two weeks is to look back at old sports movies. Bev and I have already covered quite a few of the classic sporting flicks on the Top 100 Project and the next 100 Project, Raging Bull, Rocky, The Hustler, Bull Durham was only a few weeks ago. But there is still a lot left to review, including some of those dreadfully wonderful Rocky sequels. So when a podcast of ours finds its way into your device on a random Thursday or Friday, we're going to aim for Thursdays every two weeks. Now you'll know why. So our first episode is, as you obviously already guessed by your download information, The Mighty Ducks. We're starting out with a whimper. Or a quack. 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 So bad. Well, it's not fair to call it a whimper. The movie is often lame and even a bit stupid. Plus, we've seen these tropes one or two or eight hundred times. Uh, at least. But the movie is also surprisingly emotional. And I can't deny there were salty discharges in my eyes a few times. What did you think of the movie that you wanted to do, actually? The Mighty Ducks is our debut podcast. Yeah, you know what? I think you nailed it pretty well. It's lame in so many ways. It probably fails in a lot of ways, too. But at the end of the day, it succeeds in the most meaningful way. And you do actually feel it. You're right. It was one of my suggestions. But I'm happy you went along with it. Because it pretty much nails exactly what I was thinking of when I first started talking to you about doing this. I remember this movie from being a kid. I mean, I was into hockey a little bit already, but this is one of the driving forces behind me really becoming a huge hockey fan. It had a real impact on me, but then I didn't see it for 25 years, so I've been watching it as an adult. Yeah, it doesn't really... Uh, <laughs> it doesn't hold up. It doesn't hold up quite the same way. Easy for me to say is like the world's oldest 37-year-old looking at it through a cantankerous <laughs> old man's eyes. I'm going to pick it apart a lot, but... I legitimately enjoyed it. For all of the gripes and all of the nitpicking, it came together and it did its job. You're not a teary fellow, but were there any salty discharges coming out of your orbs? Well, there's often discharges coming out of me in various ways, Ryan, but <laughs> I don't think I cried at any point, nor was even... I wasn't on the verge. I'm an easy crier, so that's why. Well, you're, you're a man who's in touch with his emotions, what can I say? Watching movies, I am. By the way, we should say that Fox and Sam are here in the room with us. Fox is a huge Chris guy, so you're going to hear him pittering around and begging for toys. They're as excited to record this as we are. Mm -hmm. Usually they're in this room, but they're quieter than this. At least Sam's being quiet. So some bona fides on the movie. It was released on October 2nd, 1992. Makes it 26 years ago almost. God, I'm so old. <laughs> and it was a decent hit on what was a pretty low budget. It was 31st at the box office that year, while another Disney product, Aladdin, was number one. I really love this. I didn't have any idea this was true. The Rotten Tomatoes numbers in the movie. 18% of critics liked it. Only five fresh, 23 rotten. <laughs> and 23 rotten. But this is what's fascinating. How many sequels did it generate? The sequels were better than the original, at least from the standpoint of the critics. So I said 18%. D2 in 1994 had 21%. And the audience is actually liked less. So 65% for the first one and 58 for the second. And then D3 in 1996 also outdid the first one. 20% of critics and 45% of audiences. Wow. Wow, wow, wow. <laughs> None of those are good scores, but the first one has the worst numbers. And by the way, I usually do this way before this point. In a nutshell, third worst team in the league captures Children's Chili Weather Championship. Say that three times fast? <laughs> I don't think I can. But third worst team. They only make the playoffs because... The worst team forfeited for some reason. Yeah, the measles, wasn't that yeah, it? The measles, maybe, yeah. And they won one game or something like that. Maybe two games <laughs> for Mighty Ducks. Or I guess they're just the Ducks and they make the playoffs. With any... Big Disney production, although you did say it's a relatively small budget. You want to set it in a thriving metropolis, someplace that's really going to speak <laughs> to the masses. So, and they did. And they did. They chose you know, the bustling metropolis of greater Minneapolis. 
A hotbed for movies. This in Fargo. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Hockey is a big thing in the Minnesota, Michigan part of America, and particularly in the 90s, not many other places, so you don't have a lot of choice when it comes to setting the stage for a movie like this. Hockey is big in that state, too. Well, especially then, right? in the early 90s in particular. And it is again now because they got a team back, but they still had the Minnesota North Stars. And through the late 80s, early 90s, though they didn't ever win a Stanley Cup, they were always a good team, right? And this was when Mike Medano was probably the biggest hockey star in America. American-born hockey star in America. Yeah, okay. Oh, wait. Brett Hall. Was he, though? Oh, no. Brett Hall was born here, but he is an American citizen. That's why he played on Team USA and yeah. the Canada Cups. I think they were still calling them at that point. Yeah. And the, I guess the Olympics probably even, too. I mean, you have a lot of players that you could talk about, and I'm dating myself and I'm losing some of the names to the last 25 years. But, of course, Wayne Gretzky's a huge name, but a huge Canadian name. you got players like maybe Jeremy Roenick in Chicago in this era, but I would still argue that Mike Madonna was probably one of the biggest names in America. Oh, one of. I won't argue with that. If not the biggest, I think he's up there. And he's in the movie. And he's in the movie. So hockey's popular, and then they chose, for some reason, the set in Minneapolis. Great. So we have ourselves Gordon Bombay. Good name. Great name. Fantastic name. I still feel like it's a name that is more suited to some sort of high-stakes gambler than a peewee hockey player, but whatever who is a peewee hockey phenom. And we hear throughout the course of the movie just how damn good this kid is. So good, in fact, that Basil McRae offers to set him up with a minor league tryout because he remembers how good Gordon was as a 10-year-old. 20 years ago, I guess. 20 years later, and when he flat out refuses to skate for that intervening 20 years. But anyway, this kid's great. He's fantastic. But he has one minor setback in the course of his peewee career, and he refuses to look at hockey for the next 20 years. So, fast forward to the early 90s, Gordon Bombay is a high-flying defense attorney. He decides to, upon getting chastised by his boss, do a little bit of the old drinking and driving. Community service, here we come, teaching young kids how to play hockey, how to respect one another as men, women, and children. Learn about teamwork. Learn about teamwork, learn about the fun of the game, learn about working together, and by golly, doesn't he learn those same lessons along the way. And yet, I hate hockey and hate kids, as he says in the beginning. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and one free skate, when Hans gives him the skates, he becomes a fan like of both that. kids and hockey. I don't know about you, Ryan, but the way I generally try to win over any child I meet is to tell them that I hate you and I hate everything about you. It works every time. When they drive onto the ice in that limo, I would have given a hundred bucks if that damn thing had fallen through the ice. Oh man, I couldn't agree with you more. Nothing, <laughs> nothing made me a little bit more squeamish than... Everything about that scene was just ridiculous for a number of reasons. But yeah, number one, I really wanted to go through the ice. But <laughs> We're morbid people. Maybe. But I'm sorry. You're some dude in a stretch Lincoln limo. I know it's safe. I know it's safe. I was a peewee hockey player. I can look at that ice and tell you it's exact maximum weight capacity. You look at the scene around them and it's warehouses. It's an industrial area. I'm almost certain this is just laid ice, right? Like, there's no way there's a deep pond in the middle of industrial Minneapolis. So they probably just poured down a little bit of water, and the ice is all of an inch thick. So I don't know what the mother was freaking out about when she accused him of risking the child's lives, because I think the worst thing that happens is the ice cracks, and you can't skate on it. They also don't have proper equipment, and there's something on the IMDB about this. They wouldn't be allowed in that league period with the equipment they have. The Hawks, of course, who have to wear black because they're the bad guys, the Darth Vader rule. And by the way, the Black Hawks. There's a lot of teams in this league that became, or already were, hockey teams in the NHL. The Black Hawks, or the Hawks in this movie. The Jets, the Flames, the Panthers, and then, of course, the Ducks in this movie made the real Ducks, the Anaheim team. But anyway, the Ducks are D5 at that point. Don't even have proper equipment. They wouldn't be allowed to play, period. Ugh. Goldberg would be killed by a puck, even by a kid being shot at. This league is either super loose with its waivers and legal requirements, or the Ducks are not actually part of the league and they've just snuck onto the ice. I guess aside <laughs> from that, Gordon Bombay is a trial attorney. He should understand all about liability. <laughs> So, I mean, you're letting these kids go on the ice. Like you said, the goaltender has no pads to speak of. He's got, like, duct tape around his shins. Yeah, it's magazines, isn't it? And these kids, their parents are in the stands watching this travesty happen. It's all very hilarious. But can we rewind to the beginning real quick? We sure can. Because that opening scene, I love. Oh, when Gordon's a kid. When Gordon's a kid. And this sets the stage for the whole movie, right? Because like we said, this kid, we later find out, is just an absolute superstar of a peewee hockey player. And... 
He is also the sweatiest kid I've ever seen on, on two skates in my life. When he's setting up in very dramatically framed fashion for that penalty shot, you can just see the sweat pouring down his face. So this kid was working hard. Lo and behold, he skates in, stick handles beautifully. Dramatic and, music the whole oh, time. Just absolute slow-mo. And just rings it off the crossbar and instantly collapses to his knees. Lets his whole team down. And that coach... It's the kind of kids hockey coach you just want to punch in the face because the absolute despair and disgust that he conveys wordlessly, especially as young Gordon peers to the bench for a little bit of reassurance, mm-hmm. left me thinking, this man needs more in his life. If this is how distraught you are about this game, then, man, I'm sorry. I feel for you a little bit. He's the coach of that team for over 20 years, too. Yeah, exactly. And my thought when we later see him in the future is, this guy looks damn good. He does. Look he looks fantastic. For, yeah, for having been 20 years later, he looks exactly the same. What's his secret? He's a plastic surgeon. That's how he funds this team. Apparently, yeah. This is the instigating incident for all of Gordon's life. He misses this one penalty shot, and you see the opposing goalie skate off the ice celebrating. But it's still tied. Yeah, it makes no sense. <laughs> the game's not over yet. Game's, yes. You're going to overtime. The Hawks players could still win this game. Gordon could still score a goal in overtime, or one of his teammates could. But they never addressed that. And no point did they say, well, you know what, I missed the penalty shot, we went to overtime, and they later scored and we lost. It was just, oh, that damn penalty shot, that was it. And then you see a, fl- uh, what's it called, a banner in the stands later. Mm-hmm. Second place, 1973 Peewee. Yeah. Oh, the shame. And then just like that, instantly we're transported to Gordon in a courtroom 20 years later, mm-hmm. being the sleazy defense attorney that he later turns into. Greatly successful, mind you. You could have been one of the greats. Well, as a lawyer, he is one of the greats. And probably, especially in the early 90s, probably has way more earning potential in that law career than he would have had as a, let's face it, probably middling hockey player, if anything, at the NHL level. Yeah, even as a star, he wouldn't make as much money as he could as a lawyer, necessarily. It may not be that much of a difference back then, anyway. I mean, case in point, this guy, he wins his trial, but he does it in a sketchy way. So his boss back at the office, rather than congratulating him, good job, Gordon, you're 30-0. and Well, 30-1 and maybe, but 30-0. and <laughs> Instead, he reams him out. This isn't a game. This is real life. you got to behave with like integrity and all that kind of jazz. So what does Gordon do? He hops in his Firebird. Is there a more late 80s, early 90s douchebag <laughs> car than the, the Firebird? And then decides to get ripped? I feel like there's something we missed here. Are well, you... he's been without his dad this whole time. He talks about it with Hans. That's one of the moments that made me emotional was, I lost my dad that year when he screws up in the playoff game. So it was a rough year for him back then, and obviously he's been haunted by it ever since. A lot of sports movies have the absent dad or maybe absent mom cliche. I felt like there was too big a disconnect there, and, and this is one of my little gripes with it as we go through, is they slap you across the face with what a disappointment that shootout was in 1973 as a 10-year-old. But he was 10 years old. And I get it. You lost your dad. He was a fucking kid, though. And Lane Smith, the coach, is so hard on him. Exactly. The encouragement I give to my players as a softball captain is exactly that. You screw up, you let us all down. Let's put it this way, right? And granted, both of us are lucky enough that our parents are still with us. We've never had to understand that loss. But do you even remember now as an adult, if you were 10 years old and you suffered a failure or a setback, do you even remember it now? No, because I can't think of an example at all. Exactly, me neither. And God knows, I failed nonstop as a child. But if I remember any failures, you know, they came in my teens, in my early 20s. Like Those are the things that stick with me now as an adult. I'm sure you're probably the same way, right? If there's anything mm-hmm. that you think about when you're like, oh man, I wish I'd done better, it's probably later in life. Constantly. Just because he ends up coaching peewee hockey players doesn't necessarily mean I don't think that his failure had to lie at peewee hockey itself. Couldn't he have been a phenom through to like NCAA and crashed out then? And he still would have learned that when it all costs attitude that had to be corrected. He still would have thrown hockey aside for 20 years or 15 if he played later. He still would have failed and disappointed his now deceased father. Like he would have had all those same disappointments, but I think it would have meant more and I probably would have understand, or I would have understood anyway, why he was so destroyed by this incident. He wasn't mentally tough. Oh, hell no. He says proof in there. <laughs> he fold that quickly. And he had hundreds of goals that year, wasn't it? Yeah. You were one of the greats. You had 168, but you missed one shot, and therefore you're a total failure. It sounds like Hans was in his life back then, so why didn't Hans have more of an effect on him then, as he does when he's 30 years old? Exactly. I don't get it. And for a man that suffered one failure at 10 and one failure at 30, and that's all we know about, he seems to be doing pretty well otherwise. Mm-hmm. Whenever my boss 
doesn't even read me the riot act. Like his boss basically just said, yeah, Gordon, take it a little bit more seriously next time. And he goes on a drinking binge? This is a fragile man we're dealing with. <laughs> it's a very dark movie in some ways. Oh, yeah, it is. There's a great moment towards the end, actually, speaking of darkness, when they show the coaches head-to-head in one of those movie poster-type shots, and it's half dark between the two of them, and I literally laughed out loud at that. That was a fantastic <laughs> I want to know, Matt Lisher, Matt. How did they get that shot? All right, coaches, bring it in here. We just want to get this shot for America's number one hockey publication. You guys are going to be on the front page. Pee Wee Hockey in Minneapolis is going to be the front page story, which is also what killed me. I mean, it's a very old movie trope. Throw up the newspaper headline to splash whatever the big event is. That's old school. But really, Minnesota Pee Wee Hockey is on the front page. Every Ducks result is on the front page of what is a self-proclaimed number one hockey publication in America. (laughs) Wow. And they were not good. They were getting a little better, but they still weren't exactly... It wasn't like they were undefeated like the Hawks were. Yeah. What about the players? I say a little of Goldberg and a little of Averman, the making cuppies kid, go a long way. Yeah, I agree entirely. I was sick of the smart assassin kid about 10 seconds into meeting him. Meeting the Averman kid? The The making cuppies. Exactly. Goldberg's kind of inoffensive, but he doesn't really bring much. Oh, man, I'm blanking right now. What was the wee kid? The little tough guy. He was the other one that just got under my skin throughout the whole movie. Don't know which one you mean. One little kid wearing the leather jacket and band. Oh, that guy, yeah. And he's there all the time, and he's kind of the pain in the ass the whole movie, and doesn't really do much of anything I except be the pain in the ass. Forgotten him. That's how memorable yeah. he was. So he was a little irksome, but, I mean, otherwise, the kids were just... It was like... United Colors of Benetton in there. It was kind of funny and starkly contrasted the Hawks, for example. Nothing stuck out to me more than that final lineup when they're lining up in the championship game against the Hawks. The Hawks are just a row of pasty, white, blonde, blue-eyed kids. Bunch of young army hammers. Exactly. And then the Ducks are just like the racial rainbow just across the... Girls. They've got girls! This is also the first sports movie I remember that actually featured a co-ed team. Even before Emilio Estevez pops onto the scene, they had a girl on the team. That's kind of progressive from that perspective. What was your impression of that introductory shot? I mean, speaking of the kids, when we first meet the kids, this is before Emilio even takes over, we're just given that intro shot, right? Mm -hmm. Four of them, yeah. And Averman's one of them, and Charlie Conway, who's the star of all the kids. And then again, that wee little kid, and Mm -hmm. was it Goldberg? Was he the fourth? I forget now. But I know it's Averman, the wee kid. Yeah, you're being introduced to the the gang, anyway, Mm -hmm. whoever they are. Yeah, that's a bad gag. I don't really get why. First of all, dog shit in a purse. Why was it needed? To show how spunky they are. But dog shit in a purse, and you're five feet behind, and that smells that badly. I don't smell things, as I may have mentioned in this podcast before. (laughs) You have to tell me, does any dog shit smell that bad if you're right beside it even, let alone when it's in a purse? Yes, it does. Okay. (laughs) How about when it's that far away from you and someone's holding it out from their body as well? Yeah, maybe not in a closed purse. It's a weak gag, I think. It is a weak gag. And you talk about wanting to cry. I almost wanted to cry for all the wrong reasons when I saw this scene. And not so much for the dog shit in the purse. But we see the kids, they pick up the dog shit in the purse. After feeding the dog some sort of canned chili. Never mind what the kids. Poor dog. (laughs) Like the gastrointestinal distress this guy's suffering has got to be bad for him. They put the dog shit in the purse. They attach the $1 bill to the outside. They leave it on the street. And rather than having some passerby grab the person and chase them, they have a dude in, what was that, another Firebird? Something like that, Some sort of Corvette? Cool car. Come to a screeching halt in the middle of the street for one dollar, mind you, race out, grab the person, rip off again, and then, of course, open it up, presumably, and get disgusted, toss it out the window, and... It made no sense. I don't know why they didn't have a burning bag of shit scene instead. That's what it would have made way more sense. Nikki Nikki Nine Doors, burning bag of shit. There you go. Beautiful. Once tossing the purse, he sees the kids, deduces their guilt, decides that (laughs) instead of getting out of the car and chasing them, he's going to take the car off-road over the sidewalk and try to run them over into what becomes like a Benny Hill style, Mm -hmm. wackety sacks, high speed, that culminates with him getting groined by a fence. He got groined, but I groaned, Ryan. (laughs) While you were talking, I thought of why they did this. This is a kids movie, right? Kids love shit. Kids love puke probably too, but kids really love shit, and they also love groin injuries. Ah, my groin. Football <laughs> to the groin. Yeah, no, you're right. And again, this is cranky old man Chris looking mm-hmm. at a kid's movie, and sometimes I have to remind myself of that fact. But even so, you later meet the kids again when Gordon does, on that scene you referenced earlier, pull up on the ice in his stretch limo, 
he was the Lincoln lawyer, Lincoln lawyer before McConaughey was the Lincoln lawyer. Oh, yes. right? like, he introduces himself to the team, and their first reaction is, you're a drug dealer. Don't tell us drugs. Get out of here. I want to know what kind of high-end drug dealers these kids are dealing with in their neighborhood that they see this incredibly expensive car and a guy dressed to the nines, white guy dressed to the nines mm-hmm. too, yes. in the 90s, they think, oh, drug dealer. Kind of an interesting scene. Is it not Jesse the Black Kid pointing this out? So, oh. I think all the conservatives out there watching this movie would say, reverse racism, the real problem in America. <laughs> You're probably The right. black kid is accusing all white people of being drug dealers and bad guys. You're probably right. You asked me about what I thought of the kids in this movie, and we kind of talked about some of the lesser lights. I was actually surprised at how good Josh Jackson... Joshua Jackson, pretty good actor. Yeah, he was good even then. And I've seen him in stuff that I've liked as an adult, but I've never seen him, or I didn't even remember him being in this movie, quite frankly. You don't want to wait until Dawson's Creek (laughs) has him in their grasp. Yeah, he pulled it off. I think he's in at least the first sequel. I don't remember ever watching the sequels, but I think I saw somewhere that he was in that one. Yeah, I don't remember seeing the second one either. The other kids, as far as I know, didn't go on to too much. Eldon Henson, who plays Fulton, he's done other things. I can't think of them right now at the top of my head, but I know I've seen him in he's other He's got films. those faces. Did you have any flashbacks of seeing the limo driver slash henchman hanging around the kids? He's the real sinister character from Lost. He's Tom Friendly in Lost. Exactly. exactly. MC so Ganey, yeah. I was just waiting for him to reveal his long game and how... It's kind of a weak role. He doesn't really do very much. What's interesting is that he is employed by the Duckworth Law Firm, and when Gordon gets fired before the movie's even over, he stays with them. He's with them at the end when they win the championship, so I guess he's doing this on his own free time now. The Ducks really engender a lot of loyalty, Ryan. Like, you don't (laughs) need money when you've got team. Fair play and spirit is everything. So you were talking earlier about that shitball equipment that the kids show up Mm -hmm. for in their first game, when they just get destroyed and Emilio is just not having any of it. You guys are terrible. What's wrong with you? Did you notice that he called on their lines the Oreo line? Was it him that called them that? Yeah. I thought it was the other team, one of the players that said that. Was it? They play the Hawks, and I think it's one of the Hawks players. Isn't it the Hawk player who later on, when he wipes out Adam in the championship game, what did you do? My, My job. job. <laughs> Terrible <laughs> that's, acting. That's and he doesn't even cross-check him that hard either. He tripped him, but he slid into the goal. That's what it takes for Jesse to finally be won over. He calls him cake eater all the time. He's got no respect for Adam the whole movie. And then when Adam's badly injured, then suddenly Jesse's, ah, we'll win one for you, buddy. Win one for the Gipper. I gotta tell you, one of my primary gripes of this movie was the fact that they, for some reason, decided that they needed to bring in that kid from the Hawks. That whole plot line, I thought, just undermined the success of the Ducks. I think Cracked is the website that did this. I think others have talked about this, too, that actually what he does is a bad guy move, meaning Gordon the whole redistricting move, because it's almost like what you hear Americans do to voters. They redistrict areas, and it's just to screw over certain people. Adam's playing with his friends, as his father and the coach point out. Right. And it doesn't really matter. It's not like he's blatantly cheating. It's not like he's some ineligible player, even though I guess technically he is. But it's such a technicality, and Gordon's a lawyer. Maybe that's why he does it in the first place. But it makes him look like the bad guy, even though his look (laughs) is this hero move. No, you're absolutely right. And... When Gordon gets suspended by his boss, and that's the whole thing that he gets suspended, he has to do community service, they get called the Ducks because he talks his boss into naming them after the Duckworth Law Firm Mm -hmm. and funding the equipment that they'll later get. But the speech his boss gives him is that hopefully in doing this community service, you will become a better, and trust me, Ryan, as a guy that works around lawyers, that has two lawyers as parents, this made me laugh out loud. When he tells Gordon, this will hopefully make you a better lawyer, it'll make you understand integrity and all that kind of good stuff, that seems contradictory to lawyers in general and media, is that the guy that you're going to hold up as being the pinnacle of integrity and good faith and fair play, that is never the lawyer's role. His job is to win the case. Exactly. Listen, in the real world, you want a lawyer that behaves that way, but in movies, they're always the bad guys, the scumbags, they're the Mm -hmm. ones that'll do anything to win. But the boss has flipped the script on Gordon. That's what you're going to learn, Gordon. By the point at the movie when he pulls that bad guy move, he's already turned the corner. He's already been shown the light. His arc is actually finished, basically. It is. For all that, he's now the good guy. He's behaving with integrity. He's going to let the team win on their own terms. But, oh, you know what? Before we do that, here's a loophole I found, Mm -hmm. guys. And this is after the boss explicitly said, no more loopholes, Gordon. You're going to do this community service. And no, he finds one. He gets the best player from the other team to come play for the Ducks. And honestly, I would have loved it if the Ducks had pulled a Rocky arc rather than win the championship. I agree. You know what? They don't get the best player. Just do away with that whole subplot Mm -hmm. and that whole conflict with his boss that later gets him fired. Like, find another reason for him to get fired. 
but you use the players you have, the ruffians, the scruffy team that you started out with. Who improve very quickly, by the way. Oh, man, they are fast learners. To even be competent, they improve very fast. But even if you could find a way to squeak into the playoffs and keep it close, and you know what, you lose, but you feel good about it, Mm -hmm. right? You're competitive now. You've grown as a team, and then you come back maybe in the sequel like Rocky did, and you win the championship as the underdog. Ah, the biggest mistake in Rocky is that he won the championship in Rocky too. But I agree with what you're saying. If you want to make it feel real, the Ducks lose that last game. Yes. But Gordon doesn't ice out Charlie for not scoring on the triple deke. Exactly. Which, by the way, is a very quaint move now. And you watch people, what they can do in the NHL, the deke moves that some of those guys can do. These are kids, granted, but holy shit, the things that those guys can do in the NHL, it's my God. amazing. Gordon goes and he gets all the money from his boss. They re-equip themselves. They go on the quintessential night. It's such a good vibration. <laughs> dun, did, you, dun, dun. did you get vibes of Home Alone when you were watching this? At any, because I got it a few times. And this is one of them. The montage of the store reminded me of, and it's probably Home Alone 2, to be honest. Kevin going through like the great, huge New York toy okay, store with yeah. his dad's credit right. card and that whole thing. And later on, I got that same vibe from Hans when he's kind of the mystical... He's the kindly old ghost. I think he's dead. Yes. I don't think he's alive at all. Maybe that's, that's why he didn't help Gordon as a kid. He's actually oh, wow. this ghost figure. Although other people see him, not just Gordon, so it can't you know really work. That would be so good, though, because that explains so many things. I, I never understood how Hans... A, why Hans is at his bloody shop in the middle of the night sharpening skates anyway. Yeah. But how are those skates... I knew you'd come here. The, yeah, how do you know Gordon's going to show up that night after 20 years? How do you know what his shoe size is? You haven't Although, seen this guy. they cover that one because he says... I had to guess at your shoe size. And if they're too big, wear thick socks. That's uh, all right. They do cover that one. All right, fair enough. And Joss Ackland, by the way, almost always played villains. He should have been the hockey coach, although Lane Smith is good as the hockey coach. Oh, but, Lane Smith was great as the hockey but coach. But Joss Ackland was known for playing villains, and here he's playing the Bagger Vance character. <laughs> yeah. The helpful yeah. coach. The extra coach, whatever you want to call it. The guide. Yeah, so I'm proud of you, Gordon. <laughs> <laughs> I guess if there was a moment I actually felt the feels, it was probably during that I'm proud of you, Gordon moment. The father surrogate, proud of Gordon at last. Oops. It was a nice moment. Every sports movie needs a montage or six or eight of them. And this one has, I'd say, three, four at least. It is very rocky in that sense. Well, it's a very formulaic sports movie in a lot of ways. Did this help set the template? I'm sure it didn't initially set the template. I don't remember for sure because the movie is 26 years old. But did it maybe set the template that other movies followed? One thing I know, I remember thinking this movie did first and other sports movies have since, is you only win with the original team or you only get by with the original team. Fulton and Adam are on the roster in the championship game. Right. But when they win the game at the end, Adam's been hurt and Fulton's been thrown out of the game. I'm on, coach. I'm off, coach. <laughs> <laughs> For a guy that's barely played. I know, he's like the closer in baseball. He only seems to come on to shoot at the end or to well, not shoot and they scored, fake it out. He scored times. one goal, right? Mm-hmm. Earlier in the season. And an assist game. as well. And, but he, oh, and that had, game, okay, yeah. And he had an assist earlier in the season on, I guess, what was the game winning goal against the Cardinals or whatever mm-hmm, the first okay. half. But other than that, I don't think he had any impact at all. And he also improves a lot as a skater. He goes from being completely inept to being pretty good. But to be a... able to shoot like that on skates would take an awful lot of talent and balance. There's yeah. no way he would learn that in a year, even let alone a few weeks. No, absolutely. I was impressed. They pick him up, essentially, on the side of the road. I mean, he's kind of that mythical badass kid with all the rumors about why he can't play hockey. And, of course, it turns out he doesn't play, not because he's got a scholarship as a football player, but because he can't skate. So Gordon finds him breaks his car's window and confronts him and recruits him for the team and he needs to teach him how to skate. And is there a more quintessential early 90s way to do that than to have a montage of rollerblading indoors? The Mall of America, I guess, is where they must be. No. where It wasn't. It is Minnesota. Oh, okay. Oh, it might be where it was intended to be, but where was it actually? Do you seem to know. I don't know. The Eaton Center. Oh, really? Downtown Toronto, Did right? Did they shoot this movie here or just yeah. that one sequence? There's an outdoor shot, and this is narrow casting, I get it. It's a Toronto audience only. There's a shot of the Queen Street overpass with a TTC bus going under it, and then they come through oh, from man. Hudson's Bay. I did not recognize that. And all it got me to think was, wow, the Eaton Centre was crazy empty in the early 90s, because <laughs> you go down there now, and you can't walk, never mind rollerblade through the damn thing. But you want to talk about liability and the fact that Gordon is a lawyer? Let's strap some rollerblades to some kids and throw them downstairs in a mall and see what happens. Like, None of them could do that very well, but especially the guy who can't skate at all. He's lucky he didn't break his neck. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> that would have been a real twist. We got Fulton on our team. Now go learn to skate. And oh, We've killed Fulton. <laughs> Fulton's dead. Fulton's dead, guys. Win it for Fulton. Now why does Fulton wear eye black in games? Is it really bright in those arenas? No, He's wearing questions. eye black. He's not a baseball player for a noon game. <laughs> 
well, maybe they're playing at outdoor rinks most of them, or he's used to standing outside of the rinks. I don't know. Maybe he doesn't want to lose a puck in the lights. The bigger question is how mad, how furious will the Zamboni guy be after that egg cradling drill? All that yolk on the ice. He'd want to kill them, especially Gordon. Probably not kill the kids, but kill Gordon. So you're saying the yolks on him? Oh, man. This is what Chris brings to the podcast, folks. The dad jokes. <laughs> He's younger uh, than me, but he acts older than me. Damn right. But yeah, you're right. That was an interesting scene. Cradlets, soft hands, soft hands. Well, Bev and I reviewed Bull Durham a few weeks ago, and in that movie, Costner tells Robbins, the ball's an egg, so hold it like an egg. Maybe an unintentional link there? Probably not. <laughs> I'm linking them because we did podcasts for both of them. That's what yeah, that's, I do. That's a tenuous connection. <laughs> I love my links. What about the relationship between Gordon and Charlie's mother, Casey? Every kid likes to encourage his coach to fuck his mom, yeah, which is right. what Charlie does. Repeatedly, it was, again, one of those extraneous story arcs that amounted to nothing, ultimately. Well, it looks like they're going to start dating. Do you care? Like, he gets his kiss on the ice. I and... want the coach to get boned. <laughs> So yes, I care. Okay, so a very big part of this Disney movie. Aside from maybe a substantial part of the audience that really wants to see Emilio get those blue balls cured, <laughs> aside from that, is there any payoff to that whole arc, the relationship? Not really. It That's comes true. up essentially out of nowhere. You see about one or two scenes of the two of them just kind of interacting, and then all of a sudden they're essentially a couple. I thought it could have been done away with, and it would have been a stronger movie for not having those scenes in there. It would have just tightened it up. But some of my favorite laugh-out-loud moments, and maybe they weren't intended this way... Because like you said, Charlie is actively trying to get the coach and his mom together. She has many attractive qualities. She does. I'm aware of that, Charlie. <laughs> She's a very attractive woman, right? Mm-hmm. But he's doing his damnedest to get them together. But every time one of the kids at school is like, your coach's favorite. He's like, no, you mean his mom is the coach's favorite. And Charlie just gets pissed off. Mm-hmm. No, my coach and mom aren't together. What are you talking about? Charlie. This is what you want. This is what you want. You should be sitting back saying, yes, thank you. My coach and my mother. Thumbs up. Thumbs up. I approve of this relationship. But he just gets so angry. Well, that's another way that they bring them all back together, though, because Gordon has to get them out of detention. You quacked at the teacher. Are we ducks or what? Correct me if I'm wrong. That is after he has his meeting with the boss and he talked about Adam Banks and the redistricting. Of course, that kid's dad is Emilio's boss's best buddy from yeah. whenever. Guess what, Gordon? Your community service will be over. All is forgiven. All you got to do is give Adam back to his original team, the Hawks, right. and sign this paperwork for the league. Drop and you're your good. protest. I was a little bit confused about why the boss, on the one hand, gave him that speech about integrity and doing the right thing, and then suddenly turns around and you know essentially actively finds that loophole that he forbade Gordon from finding earlier in the movie, and now wants him to go through that, or he'll be fired. But, of course, now Gordon takes the moral high ground. He's the one displaying that, no, he's learned the lesson. He's now going to behave with utmost integrity, and he's going to reject this. Adam will play for the Ducks with nobody else. And, yep, he's now unemployed because his boss will fire him for apparently no grounds at all. So I assume there's going to be some sort of lawsuit against that law right. down the line. Sure. Although Gordon's going to go off to try to make an NHL team at the yeah. end of this movie. so As a 30-year-old, so when that inevitably fails, I assume he'll <laughs> sue the law firm for wrongful Well, Basil well. McRae spoke for him. Basil McRae, Chris. Basil. Mike Modano might be a name that casual sportsmen know. Hockey fans would certainly know. I remember Basil McRae. Basil, well, you're a hockey he, fan. A you're Canadian as well. That's true. But Basil McRae is not a name that the average person would know. No. So, in that scene, he quacked at his boss. Yes, exactly. So, I mean... Stop quacking, Gordon. Gordon has either gone full duck or he's just totally lost the plot. You might be in for it now. So, as you mentioned earlier, Hans, the spirit guide, explains to Gordon, you can still make the playoffs. It's really explained to us, but yeah. Yeah, because this is apparently a 10-team league in which 8 of the 10 on any given year will make the playoffs. Mm-hmm. One team, like we were mentioning earlier, they had the measles or something, so they forfeited. Yeah. They're out. And the Ducks were winless, but one other team was either winless with a tie or had one win. So they had to beat them head-to-head. So they had to win and they did. one game. And they did, and they're in. Yeah. They're in the playoffs. But they don't play the Hawks in the first round, which they should, because they're the eighth seed, and the Hawks are the number one seed. Thank they play them in the finals. There was a lot of problems from a bracketing perspective. Although, for those who live in Toronto that might know the Toronto Sport and Social Club, which we've played in many times. I've played in many different leagues, but you've played softball only, I think, right? I've played uh, Well, anyway, okay, we've played mostly softball. Every once in a while, when we finish in the top four, it doesn't go one and four, two and three every single time. Usually it does. But I've been in the league sometimes where you look and think, okay, we're playing this team, and you'll see it actually get posted, and suddenly it's one versus three, two versus four, which is not quite the same thing as this, but they don't always go by the 
logic of one versus eight, two versus seven, and so on. That's true. But still, that's the way it should that's be the, for like, that's a hockey the standard, tournament. Right? Mm-hmm. Now the NHL's deviated from that one versus eight, two versus And it's seven. so confusing. It's terrible. But I'm proud of this. This is my utmost moment of pedantry, Ryan. I went back. I re-round to where Hans was showing Gordon the standings. Mm. And if I remember correctly, the Cardinals were the sixth seed. Okay. So the Ducks would have been the eighth. The Cardinals, who they played in the first round, right? And that's when they had their triumphant Fulton fake shot to... The girl. The girl. Mm Mm-hmm. Which is also great. It was really nice to see, actually not once but twice in this movie. By the end of it, there's two female players on the team. Mm-hmm. They both had pivotal roles. They weren't relegated to just background characters. They actually were integral to the success of the team. But that Cardinals team was a six seed. So you're saying to me, the eight versus the six play each other in the first round. Mm-hmm. And then they're off to the finals. Which also doesn't make sense. They don't show other rounds? I don't remember no. that now. It's just the Cardinals, and then they're playing the number one seed in the finals. So how do you get from... Skip ahead, skip ahead, skip ahead, I yeah, guess. Yeah, so there should be at least a three-round bracket for eight teams. But again, this is my moment of pedantry. And, and <laughs> we like that on the Top 100 Project, or this podcast iteration now. I'm sure not a lot of 10-year-old kids watching this movie would say, Well, hold on now. There should be another round of playoffs in there. Actually, Bart, I want some accuracy in my hockey seedings. <laughs> Worst bracket ever. <laughs> We keep talking about Fulton because he's one of the key members of the team. That kid's on some serious roids. Oh, he's a big boy. He's breaking glass with a puck, and he's supposed to be no more than, I don't know, 12 or 13 years old. I don't know yeah. what the age bracket is. Let's say he's 12. And he rips the mesh. I don't think NHL players could do that with the hardest shot they've ever let loose off their own sticks. Yeah, and the only reason I could come up with for that is in the same vein that we saw the Ducks start out their careers and just shitball equipment, mm. magazines as pads, maybe that isn't an actual net. Maybe this league in general is just super poor, and they just, like, cook some spaghetti noodles and tie them together. What about that... the glass, then? I don't know. Is that breakaway stuff they put in movie cars? <laughs> <laughs> or we have in real cars now. We have an accident. The thing explodes. I've been yeah. involved in that. It's not big shards like it was when we were kids or before we were kids, I guess. Right. It shatters into small pieces. Yeah. I don't have a good answer for you, right? <laughs> Except that this kid is juicing. Well, they did mention he was on some sort of prep school football scholarship or something, so maybe they've got him pumped up on HGH. So what about the cliche that they only went at the end with their original team? Although Fulton's been on the team for a long time, not from the very beginning, though. And, of course, Adam's been wiped out in the final part of the game because they are on their roster in the first place. It seems even less likely. Fulton is a bruiser. He does throw that guy who did the, it's my job, into the penalty box. Or Physically throws him in. Yeah, like, which speaking, is why he's off. Speaking he of roids. Yeah. <laughs> and then Adam's wiped out, although he scores one or two goals in the game. But is it realistic at all that this team would ever beat Anybody without those two, and especially the number one team. Using an illegal move earlier, by the way, the Flying V, which I always thought was offside, but I watched closely. They do the Flying V thing, and then somebody, whoever's got the puck at the end. The lead guy was carrying No, no, the lead guy doesn't have it until the very end of the move. The guy at the back, I guess the defenseman, does headman the puck to him right before they go into the zone. So that would be onside. But you can't body check people who have the puck. So it's interference. There'd be multiple penalties on the play for interference. This is the hardest hitting, loosest referee peewee <laughs> hockey game I've ever seen in my life. The initial play, the very first play of the game, off the faceoff, there are two Hawks that take out who took the faceoff for the Ducks. Okay. The puck goes a totally different direction, but they wipe this kid out. Interference. Two, two minutes. Interference, cross-checking. They later slew foot him. And then on the bench, they take a shot of the coach for the Hawks saying, that's the cheap shot I want to see. Keep it up, guys. That's the kind of hockey I want to see all the rest of the night. And we can't be seen on our podcast right now, but I'll do it for Chris, the old oh, you, you got the collar. Pop, pop the collar, man. <laughs> it wouldn't be the 90s if somebody wasn't popping the collar. You say, was it realistic? No, it, it's not realistic. But, I mean, you don't expect realistic portrayal necessarily of the game itself. Maybe now we would, as an audience in 2018, expect realistic portrayals of sporting events. But I think in the 90s, they had to win. They had to win. A lot of sports movies since have been better for the fact that they did lose, like the original Rocky, which set so many sports movie templates. Friday Night Lights, the movie, had them lose. And I can't think of other examples, but I know there are other ones <laughs> where they don't win in the end, but they got their self-respect and they tried so damn hard. And that was the success. And also Charlie and his mother and Gordon are going to be this family unit, so that's the real success, I guess. I guess, yeah. But I think you have to be confident enough in your script and your movie as a whole that you're going to be able to win over the audience and get that emotional payoff at the end without winning. I could totally understand how the director or screenwriters of this would not be so confident that the kids are going to buy into the movie if the Ducks don't win when it's Mm -hmm. all said and done. You talked about cliches and tropes, and there was one that drove me crazy, and it is a trope in movies throughout the ages. I hate it. It's the worst and laziest screenwriting, I think. 
There's the moment when Gordon is confronted. I think this is just before the last regular season game. Gordon is confronted by Lane, the actor. Lane Smith. Lane Smith, thank you. Coach, Coach of the Hawks. Yeah, let's look up his name here. His name is Coach, Coach Riley. Yeah, so Gordon's confronted by Coach Riley. Gordon strikes a very sarcastic tone at one point, and he says, yeah, you know what, they're a bunch of losers, right. and they'll never win. They don't deserve to live. They don't deserve to live. And of course, somehow, totally unnoticed by anybody while this conversation is going on in what is essentially a pretty open space, minus one pillar behind which two of the ducks are standing, mm-hmm. you know, they overhear this and immediately book it, totally assuming that Gordon is being sincere and calling them losers, and he hates them. So Gordon goes back to the locker room, talks to them, and they all quit the team. And rather than say, guys, I was being sarcastic. He does say that. He does later. That's right. He says that when they're doing lines and he goes in there to get them out of detention. He says to them then, do you guys understand the concept of sarcasm? No. Right. So they clearly understand it. And they never for an instant considered that he's being sarcastic in this conversation because, quite frankly, Amelia was laying it on thick. It wasn't subtle. So... Mm. The fact that they walk out, and at no point would he actually make an effort to explain what actually happened. He just sort of stammered as a guy. What? What? No. How dare you? What? I mean, this is a trope through movies of all kinds. Romance movies. The girlfriend yeah. will find the boyfriend in a compromise. The best example, rom-coms. Yeah, exactly. Three's company type misunderstanding. And rather than take a moment to say, oh no, I'm just bending over because she dropped her earring rather than... Like, They've been fucking for months. Exactly. <laughs> and, and babbling incoherently. You know, take the two seconds to actually explain what happens. Everyone understands. Mm-hmm. Listen, I understand that there needed to be some impetus for the falling out so that they could all be brought back into the fold and dramatically win that must-win last game. But again, it's just lazy screenwriting where I think we've actually gotten considerably better in the intervening 25-plus years about doing away with some of those lazy tropes. But as soon as I saw that, I had to groan a little bit. Especially because, like you said, later on they do say, yeah, we totally understand sarcasm. Oh, what do you mean? You're just being sarcastic? Okay, all is forgiven, coach. We're going to go win the game for you now. And how dare you be a hawk 20 years ago? Yeah. As if you could control that. I know. It was district lines. Like we found out. It was all based on district (laughs) lines. When Bev and I do movies like this, we always talk about the the behind-the-scenes stuff, the technicals. We won't get too much into that, but i got to mention the director's name. I haven't done that yet. Stephen Herrick, who did the first Bill and Ted movie, which I still love. He didn't do the second one, though. And his writer was Stephen Brill who's written a seven-game series of shitty screenplays. He's written seven scripts, so that's why I say seven-game <laughs> series. He wrote the sequels to this movie and Little Fucking Nicky. That's a rough resume right yeah. there. But Stephen Herrick has two decent movies on his resume with this and Bill and Ted, more so Bill and Ted, which is still funny. I saw both it and the sequel not that long ago. I enjoyed them both. What about Emilio Estevez, the big star? This is the peak of the guy's career. He's really disappeared from movies. I think he was pretty good in the role, considering it's not really asking that much of him. He was okay. I thought he was a little bit of a non-entity, to be honest. He did what he had to do to carry the role, I suppose, but he didn't really win me over. I think the two most affecting performances for me were maybe Josh Jackson. Yeah, especially for a kid actor. He was good. I mean, Hans did great in a limited role Mm -hmm. in what he had to do. The ghost dad. The ghost dad. Lost guy. What's his name? MC Ganey. MC Ganey. MC Ganey. Lewis. I loved MC Ganey in this movie because he had no true purpose except to be there, but every few scenes he would pop up. There was a scene of him during one of Emilio's what was supposed to be a rousing speech, and he's just behind the bench for some reason recording everything on a video camera. Which he didn't do before, I don't think. No, that one time only. So I don't know if Emilio asked him to do that because he wanted to create some sort of reel to get into movies and he wanted an example of like a great rousing speech, but... He showed up there. There was a scene where they're skating around. I think it was before the North Stars game where they met Mike Modano and Basil Lecrae, right. where he's just getting the shit kicked out. He's part of that montage. Yeah. Some of the kids. He's on a chair. They're pushing him around, and then they all fall down. They're all laughing hysterically. Exactly. Ha, 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 ha. <laughs> he's just like the creepy guy that's always hanging around, and all mm-hmm. the kids love him for some reason, but they have no interaction that I've ever seen except in these like weird montages and little sub-scenes. So I kind of loved his little pieces here and there, especially given... He was part of the law firm's retainer, and Gordon was later fired. So he's just hanging out now for the hell of it. And then aside from that, of course, the Blackhawks coach, Lane Smith, right? Is Lane that, Smith, yeah. He always plays the... Very hero. one note, though. He's very one note, but do you hate him? I hated him. I thought, yeah, okay. And that's the whole point. You that's want, his job. He's the heel. And I guess he has to recruit a bunch of kids next year, because if you lose this game, none of you make the team next year. Yeah, he cut the whole team in the last game. <laughs> Aside from the fact that I couldn't understand quite why he wanted Adam to get taken out in that last game. Because when he said that, the Hawks were leading 3 nothing. 
they were stomping the Ducks. Banks hadn't scored a goal at that point? No, he scored the goal immediately after the coach told... The cross-check thing happened? Yeah, it was during that cross-check play that he actually scored. Uh, So it was 3-0. They're getting whooped. Do you want to take out the best player and inspire the opposition? How many times in sports have we seen that happen in, in real life? One team will be losing badly, but then a player on the other team will, will take a cheap shot at one of their best players. Inspire the inspire team to get them. mad. They get mad, they come back, and they win. That's exactly what happened here. What is this coach's day job? Like, what does his life look like outside of the hockey ring? He's a plastic surgeon, that's how he says. He's looking so young. <laughs> Maybe. He works on his own face. Because he's so emotionally invested in peewee hockey. Maybe he just works at a local hardware store and is just passing the time. Well, he could be the Al Bundy type who's dwelling on past successes, but now he's got these kids he's living through. With their successes. I have to imagine, because there are few human beings in this world I've ever seen look so distraught about losing a peewee hockey game. And that man, he took it hard. Think about what a small human being this is. Gordon was his player 20 years ago, so he witnessed this kid's rise through peewee hockey. His Gretzky-esque dominance. Yeah, and subsequent collapse. Oh yeah, speaking of Gretzky-esque dominance, we never did talk about the scene when Gordon meets Basil McRae and Basil says to him, you know what? I remember you from Pee Wee Hockey. Yeah, he you would were, not remember him. You were great 20 years ago. <laughs> Let me get you a try with the minor league team. That would not happen. Wow. He witnessed this kid's tragic rejection of hockey and all that. And now Gordon's back. Gordon's won. If this coach of the Hawks was any kind of half-decent human being, he would take some satisfaction in seeing one of his former players succeed. But he doesn't. He's such a small-minded, petty little asshole. Because he's a villain. He's the emperor in oh, Star man. Wars. Absolutely. What did you think about it as a whole? I enjoyed seeing it again. I think I saw it within the last year or so. And I was fighting sleep trying to stay awake. This time I watched it when I was fully awake and took notes. So I enjoyed it. But it's not a good movie. It's fun. It's rewatchable, obviously, since I watched it more than once recently. But it's no Miracle. That's my favorite hockey movie. A lot of people would say Slapshot. But Miracle, the one about the 1980 men's U.S. hockey team, that's actually very similar to this story. The underdog that somehow beats the much better team. That's the hockey movie I like the most. Partly because the hockey scenes are so vivid and feel real. They're really well done. I think in that movie they actually got people who are hockey players first and actors second, even though they seem like they're decent actors. And Kurt Russell's great in that movie. Yep. But goddamn, Mighty Ducks, it's got some good vibrations. Dong, 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 such a... Nice callback. No, I agree. We've talked about this a few times. This is a kid's movie, and you can't... It's not made for us. It's not made for us, and you can't hold it to those same expectations as, say, a miracle, right? Because that's intended for an adult audience. And what it does, it does very well. But it does something entirely different. This movie, it has so many flaws in it. It's so reminiscent of 90s camp. Mm -hmm. But for me, that's almost... A uh, plus. A plus, yeah. Mm -hmm. Because when we talked about doing this, I wanted to rewatch those campy movies from my childhood that I remember enjoying so much. And I don't like it the way I liked it then. But I like it in the way that I enjoy campy bad movies now. You were 10 when this came out, right? We should mention yeah. that you're quite a bit younger than me. So I was right in that... Exactly, that the right age bracket. Yeah. I didn't see this movie until, I don't know when, but I was definitely too old for it at that point. I probably see every movie, so I saw this at some point, probably when I was in my 20s. But I've never liked it, but I don't dislike it either. It's one of those movies that I can watch repeatedly, like a bad Rocky sequel. <laughs> Although I do like those movies because I'm just a Rocky mark. Yeah. And this one, I guess, is in that boat. It's not terrible, but it's terribly good. Yeah, it's remarkable. It really is. Yeah. That's why I sort of had to preface things at the beginning by saying, I'm going to mock a lot of things about it, but I like it for its foibles. And ultimately, it does succeed, but I think it could have succeeded in a better way if there was just some less laziness in the script writing. Well, you get Stephen Brill to write your screenplay, and that's the problem you get. Little Nicky, man. Little Nicky. Listen, that is an illustrious career you outlined for us, Ryan. I don't know what you're talking about. He's terrible. Because I've seen so many of my childhood movies rebooted over the years, I'm waiting for the gritty Christopher Nolan-esque reboot of <laughs> The Mighty Ducks when we go in deep to the psyche of Gordon Bombay and understand his trauma that leads him to the point he's at as a 30-year-old. And I'm kind of envisioning the Dark Knight here, like, I don't like kids. <laughs> and I don't like hockey either. Alfred. I ain't wearing hockey pants. <laughs> Wincorp is going to sponsor a, a youth hockey team. <laughs> Take equipment they can buy for that team. I was proof. I found to the outfit of the Mon Kevlar. We're going to call them the Mighty Bats. <laughs> the Bats, the Ducks, the Flames, the Panthers, the on and on. Master Bruce, the Bats signal. Not now, Alfred. We've got to practice. Kids got to be ready and pass the We're eggs. passing eggs on a rink. <laughs> uh. I'm waiting for that, and I'm sure that'll be gritty, realistic. We'll see some kids just have some snapped limbs from some of those cross-checks. and uh, 
actually kill a kid on the ice. <laughs> that far. Yeah, Blake will die. He won't just get knocked down. Because Adam was fine. He was at the bus, maybe it's supposed to be months later, or even just weeks later, with Gordon going off for his tryout. But Adam was there and looking just fine. Yeah. No neck brace or anything like yep. that. And I think he's in the sequels, too, and still on the team. Maybe that's our future of this podcast. We just rewrite gritty reboots of all these <laughs> cheesy old movies and see where that takes us. <laughs> goofy silly fun like if we ever do the rocky movies i keep plugging them but we gotta do one of those sequels bev and i have covered the first rocky and creed so we'll do that maybe way into the future well i gotta say based on your earlier comments we gotta do rocky too because i think we're gonna have some interesting thoughts there's some great stuff in that movie it's not given enough credit for how oh i love it i love it a lot especially right about to the midway point which i've said on our other pod i think i said that on creed a few weeks ago i'm glad we chose this one as a lead-off podcast because i think it's a great example of exactly what i wanted to do and that's analyze these childhood movies now and just really understand how my recollections match up with the objective reality of a movie no not objective because i'm being very subjective about mm-hmm. my thoughts but like an adult's impression of a movie and how it matches up with a child's and this is a perfect example of it all right well That'll do it for The Mighty Ducks. Our second episode, in probably two weeks, won't be held to a hard and fast date, but that's what I'm going to aim for, posting these. And we'll just use our regular feed. Obviously, if you've downloaded this or it's downloaded onto your device, you know that, but we'll put it on the topnerdproject.com website, put it on iTunes. And our second episode will take us into Kevin Costner territory in the world of golf, a subject that Chris knows well, certainly better than me. He used to. Well, he still plays it, and he's a big golf fan. Well, we're going to do Tin Cup, which is actually an adult movie, not a goofy kids movie. Yeah. No, this is going to be an interesting one, because like you said, I love golf. I've played it a lot over the years. I'm quite the weekend duffer, but this is a seminal movie for me as well, as far as childhood meeting adulthood. And it was also at peak golf fever. You were a teenager by that point, because it was four years after Mighty Ducks. Yeah, so I would have been, what, 15, 16 96, years old? So, I guess about, well, it depends when you saw it, but you were 14 when it came out, I guess. Yeah, so I, probably, I don't think I would have seen it in the theater, but about mm-hmm. 15 years old. And you want to talk about great casts? Mm-hmm. I know you and Bev have talked about being Costner apologists yep, in the past. Yeah, we are. I am as well. I love him. And come on, Don Johnson mm-hmm. playing... Cheech the, Marin. The Cheech Marin, Romeo. I mean, mm-hmm. oh, I love it. And Renee Russo, at the height of her powers, really spoke to a 14-year-old great. Chris. So. Yeah. So if you want to find other stuff that Bev and I have done, go to top100project.com or top100project on iTunes. Of course, we have Next 100 Project Podcasts and Not 100 Project Podcasts and now this one. And I'm also at MovieFiend51 on Twitter. Chris is... Nowhere. He's nowhere. He does uh, not have Twitter. He can't even find him on Facebook. No, I'm a social media Luddite, Ryan. <laughs> All right, well, maybe you'll get a Twitter if this succeeds. Maybe. You'll have to because we'll I'll be contacted by our when fans. Our, when our rabid fans demand to... <laughs> Are dozens and dozens. All right, well, last thoughts for me are quack, 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 quack. Hey, now I feel stupid. We're out. Cut.